This is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, October the 27th, 2023. Every Friday for the last few weeks, uh, we've been featuring my good friend now, Peter Slen from C-SPAN. C-SPAN have been running a wonderful series, The Ten Books That Shaped America. And uh, last week we did uh, a show on The Common Law by Oliver Wendell Holmes. It was an interesting show, although I have to admit that I find Holmes and uh, Holmes's work uh, a little dry. I think we've gone from extreme dryness to wetness from a rather boring <laughs> academic study to one of America's greatest cultural achievements, a book that still lives today, uh, Huckleberry Finn, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain, who I think is uh, has nothing at all in common with Oliver Wendell Holmes, apart from the fact that they were both 19th century Americans. Is that fair, Peter? Do uh, uh, Mark Twain and Oliver Wendell Holmes, are they uh, extreme opposites, uh, opposite bookends of the American experience? Oh, I think they're both reflections of what uh, this country is about. Um, you know, Twain... Twain ended up a East Coaster, and Holmes certainly was a Brahmin from Boston. So Twain's inclinations were East Coast, a Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court. He took a different, he took a Midwestern sensibility to his topic sometimes. But um, I think they, they, I think they would have been fantastic dinner partners. Yeah, and if they weren't fantastic, they would have had a fight, which would have might have been even better. Um, <laughs> and of course, their books, uh, uh, "The Common Law" by uh, by Holmes, and uh, this remarkable book that we're going to discuss today, uh, "The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn," they're extreme opposites, aren't they? One is the foundations of American literature, and one is the foundations of American law. Well, Ernest Hemingway said about Mark Twain, uh, uh, about Huck Finn, that uh, it's the first novel, all novels derive from it, past, present, and future, basically, is what he said. And what this was not Twain's first first book, of course. Tom Sawyer came out before it. And, and uh, Huckleberry Finn is in it, is a, a character, right? Exactly. And... Uh, Tom Sawyer is a book I am more familiar with. I remember that one much more thoroughly growing up than I do Huck Finn. So this was a this was a dive back into you know secondary education here for me. Um, I like what Twain puts though because he knew that people were going to read a lot into this and he put a lot into it. But what he wrote was persons attempting to find a motive in this narrative will be prosecuted. Persons attempting to find a moral in it will be banished. And persons attempting to find a plot in it will be shot. So he he knew what he was doing. Yeah, and it's funny. And I am when he wrote You know that. when he wrote that at the beginning of the book um uh, over a hundred years later, in 1966, Susan Sontag wrote a very influential essay against interpretation. In many ways, she was simply repeating what 
um, Twain warned his readers about at the beginning of Huckleberry Finn. Don't interpret. This is this is a book of life. It's not a book of interpretation. Exactly. And the, the brilliance of Huck Finn is we're still talking about some of the issues that... Uh, did you go back raised. to it? Did you reread it for the series or did you... I did. And were you... I mean, it's obviously a very controversial a, book and we're going to get to the controversy, 31. Peter. But were you shocked, amazed, bored? What, what word would describe your rereading of the book? God, it'd be a couple of words. It always takes, and this has been throughout this series, Books That Shaped America, is that it has taken me a couple of hours to get into the syntax and the sentence structure that was used at the times that we're reading these things, especially when you come to uh, back in the Federalist Papers and Thomas Paine, et cetera. But even in Huck Finn, it took me a while. And then you have to get through the, the dialects that are being used and the words and the misspellings. Um, so it always takes me a couple of hours to rewire my brain to the time that we're looking at. Um, bored at times. Uh, intrigued. Absolutely surprised at his forward thinkingness. So, yeah, it, it, it was a good read again. And the people who teach it, you know, they, they call themselves Twainiacs. And we got a variety of teachers. Mm, it's a great show. I was just air. watching it. You, you really got a good yeah. collection. Uh, we are talking with Peter Slen, the executive producer at C-SPAN and the host of a, a wonderful series on uh, C-SPAN. Uh, I, I strongly encourage everyone who, who watches this show to actually go and look at the show on C-SPAN. It's tremendous. He does a great job. They have a, a, a great selection of voices. Uh, the, the, the series, Peter, is called Books That Shaped America. But in an odd way more than perhaps any of the other books, at least we've dealt with so far, this was a book shaped by America, wasn't it? Mm, very good. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, this is a quintessential, to use a tired word, American novel. And it reflected the times. It reflected our history. So absolutely. Yeah, this could only have been written by somebody who was from Hannibal, Missouri, and grew up observing life. And was obsessed not just with observing life, but capturing it. He wrote everything down. Uh, there were no cameras. Well, there were cameras back then, but I don't think he had one. Uh, so he he had to... He, he, he ingested America and then digested it and then recreated it in this book. Um, yeah. Remind us, wh wh when did he write the book? 1880. When did the book come out? 1884? It, it came out in 1884. It first came out in the UK and in Canada. And I thought there was something intriguing about that, but it turned out it just happened to be some kind of legal rights. Well, issue. you remember back and in it, the late 19th century, uh, Peter, in the UK and Canada, people actually bought their books. In America, people just stole them back then. <laughs> um, 
It came out in the in the states in 1885. Then. So remind us and of it did, um, it did relatively well. Yeah, well, it, and then it became a, a huge hit. Like many yeah. iconic books, it, it wasn't embraced at first. Remind us what America was like. It seemed to be in a moment of quite dramatic transition, the most dramatic transition since the Civil War in the mid-80s. Well, I'm not sure that I'd agree with that statement, but the population had grown to about 50 million. We're at, we're at about 340 now, 340 million, but it had gone up to about 50 million. There were economic panics happening in 1884. Grover Cleveland was president. The Washington Monument was finally finished. Immigration was happening. Westward expansion was happening. So the country was doing what we do best, transforming, looking west, growing, changing. And yet, I take your point, but I didn't maybe spell out as clearly as I should. Wasn't this period the moment where all the promise of reconstruction after the Civil War, particularly in terms of race yeah. and racial rights of African-Americans, the freed slaves, began to be transformed into Jim Crow. In other words, the traditional American yeah. narrative of progress was actually turned on its head. It, yeah, um, Reconstruction had officially ended and now we were entering into the Jim Crow era, era like you said, and it was a backward step for this country. And it was a, it was a little bit of a slap in the face to the progress that had been made up till that point or the hope of progress that we were all so so you had two things going on you had the beginnings of industrialization america at this point was still not a a powerful global economic power but it was an up-and-coming economic power a westward power um and yet in, in political terms it was a re in some ways at least a reactionary power it had also survived a civil war right and somehow remained intact and so to to put it in very simple terms i would say that america at this point was like a was like a, a late teen early 20s type person just kind of coming into their own and and learning their identity yeah, and uh, that's an interesting life. way of putting it, given that the book in part is about childhood. And it, yeah. it's one of the great books representing a certain kind of child, a rebellious child, a theme that gets picked up time and time again in American literature and culture. Yeah, and this one of the it was banned as soon as it came out, by the way, it's been banned over the years many times, but Concord, Massachusetts bandit yeah and, and, I, they, said and they said the whole book is of a class that is no more profitable for the slums than it is for respectable people and it is trash of the various sort all authors want that kind of uh, banning it's the biggest compliment you can get <laughs> and yes it, exactly it was it was sniffed at um <laughs> because it was told from the 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 uh the voice of a a young teen who was uneducated, was rough, was a thief. 
and uh, especially for, uh, for those sniff, sniffy New Englanders in Massachusetts, it must have been particularly uh, uh, offensive. Um, what do you think most offended people in the 1880s? We're going to, I don't want to talk about the, the race issue yet. I want to come to that after the break. But what else offended people back in the 1880s about the book? Oh, I think it was the dialect, the dialects, that it wasn't proper English. I think it could have even been the fact that Huck and Jim were friends and traveling together. Um, I think it was the the topic matter that it was playing down to the lowest common denominator in in the view of those who were sniffing at it. Um, several other reviews of it came along and they were of that ilk and of course they were hanging on to their version of america which was way less truthful than twain's version of america i agree with you i agree with you they were in they were in enclaves you had your you know your elites in some of the large east coast city and you had the rest of the country and you had the rest of the country going west. And so there were a variety, again, but Andrew, I don't, I'm, I'm not trying to disparage anyone here. I'm, what I'm saying is that we've always had this, this diversity in our population. And the fact that Twain could hit on that and bring that into this, this, uh, this novel uh, was pretty amazing. Where were his literary influences? What, what was he, was he trying to emulate anyone? I mean, he's in many ways, as you said, uh, Hemingway argued that it's the first and perhaps in some ways yeah. the last great American book, certainly in Hemingway's eyes. Um, wh wh who influenced yeah. him? What did he read? You know, that is a good question. And if you go, we have a companion podcast on this and you can learn more about Mark Twain. Talk to Matt Siebold, who's at Elmira College, and he's the uh, Mark Twain Center Studies director. You can learn a lot more about his influences, but this that is something you hit upon there. The uniqueness of this book, I think, is something that makes it stand out. The uniqueness of Twain's voice, the uniqueness that he brings, a Midwestern sensibility, and they had a bit of common sense. Yeah, there's almost a Shakespearean quality. If if we if we weren't sure Twain existed, I'm sure there'd be all sorts of academics arguing that he was a, a combination of voices or a woman or somebody else. So um, he, he he's he's a remarkable man, or was a remarkable man, wasn't he? And 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 I think I like that the American shakespeare I, I think that's kind of a good way to describe him i'm going to put that as the um, title the american shakespeare what's and I, all I, though I, right i mean shakespeare offended it, a lot of people too and shakespeare was also writing about what was going on in england at the time you know it, it again it takes a while for my brain to get wired to shakespeare um and his style but he was writing about current events Twain's writing about current events. 
He's writing about what the country is like in 1885. Well, Peter, you've given me the title, the American Shakespeare. I want to thank. Uh, speaking well, of, well, you you gave you gave it to yourself. I just agreed with you. Oh well, you've 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 accepted. <laughs> no, I, I said that that's what you would say, and you agreed to is what you say. Um, ah, okay. I want to thank our sponsor, Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics, deals with Shakespeare and Twain. Wonderful new publication. Going to run a short ad for Liberties, and then we'll be back with Peter Slen uh, of C-SPAN. I want to address the issue of race in the book because that's perhaps the most controversial and, in our mind, at least today, the most uh, central issue in the book. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We're talking to my old friend, Peter Slen. Can't keep on meeting like this, Peter. Uh, <laughs> our wives, I don't know if you have a wife, but our wives will start getting very suspicious uh, on a Friday. Where are you, where are you <laughs> off to? Um, it was interesting in the, in the show. As I said, I thought it was excellent. You had a couple of academics on, one from uh, Butler University, uh, both experts on Twain, uh, Andrew Levy, and another from Yale, uh, David Blight. And they disagreed about whether or not... Um, Twain should still be taught. Uh, I think Levy suggested he had taught Twain, but he was no longer comfortable doing it. Where, whereas uh, Blight suggested that everyone should read it, uh, N word, and all the rest of it. Uh, the, the N word is, of course, liberally used in the book. What, what did what conclusions came out of the show on the issue of race, and particularly the language and, and this liberal use of the N word in the book? And don't forget our third scholar, Jocelyn Chadwick of Harvard, was also on the program. She was on for half an hour. And it was really that the conversation around the use of language in Mark Twain is, is an ongoing conversation. Andrew Levy has taught Huckleberry Finn at the college level for years and years. He has not taught it in the last couple of years. And as he said very eloquently in the program, it doesn't quite feel right. It's not the right time. And he said, I might go back to teaching it, but I'll go back to teaching it with sensitivities and with full explanations of what's going on in the world and, and some of the issues surrounding Huckleberry Finn. So he he has not taught it in the last couple of years. He's still entranced by the book. David Blight. David Blight is a biographer of Frederick Douglass. That is what he is best known for. And he's up at Yale. And he argued forcefully that Huckleberry Finn should be taught as written because it is of that time. And he is not a proponent of censoring out language that was used at that time. And I think to him, I think he would agree with the statement that it would be like, you know, uh, rewriting Shakespeare. 
Jocelyn Chadwick, Harvard, taught Huckleberry Finn for 30 years at the high school level. African-American woman does not think it should be edited. And that was, that was an interesting perspective that she bought, brought. And it was, she admitted forthrightly that she had trouble with this book because of the language. And 200 times the N-word comes up in Huckleberry Finn. And, you know, it was a bit of a slap in the face to her. But she too, along with Blight, agreed that this book should be taught as written. And people need to hear what was being said at that time. So it's a, it, it goes all over the board on this one, Andrew, and that the conversation was civil, interesting, in-depth, uh, intriguing around the use of language in the book. And it's not just language, it's the role and place of African-Americans in the book. Uh, Huckleberry Finn, of course, is a young mm -hmm white boy but as i suggested earlier america is in this weird backward transition from reconstruction to jim crow what kind of african americans are in the book uh you have minstrels you have former slaves you have some free you have carpetbaggers you have the whole gamut uh thieves the whole gamut as you go down the Mississippi River, you get the whole, you know. There is a central uh, African-American counterpart in some ways to Huckleberry Finn. And I'm, his, oh God, you, 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 of course you asked that and it's, my head is uh, not coming up with the name of God. I want to say Tad, and I know that's not right. And I apologize for forgetting the actual name but there was a counterpart to Jim, yes. And the, the issue, we didn't get too much into Jim and his counterpart, and we focus more on the themes of the book and again, the impact that it has today. The fact that this book can be picked up today and you're going, oh my God, we're talking about these issues today same issues they were talking well, what, about. What, did, what impact did the book, you, you mentioned that David Blight um, is a biographer of uh, Frederick Douglass. We did a show, you and I did a show on Frederick Douglass a couple, mm -hmm. of, time, uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Ralph Ellison is a big fan of, uh, of Huckleberry Finn. What impact did the book initially have on African-Americans? Did they read it like everybody else? Uh, well, first of all, you have to look at reading levels in 1884 in this country. And I would venture that the majority of African-Americans at that time were not readers, were not literate, um, and only because that was our system. Teaching a slave to read, as you know, would empower that slave, as we learned from Frederick Douglass. And that was not, since we're going through reconstruction, the levels probably went up at that point. This book, uh, this book was not read in the South 
as much of as much as it was red menorah. Again, this is where the educated were living. Why in the would, up in the north. would it have been particularly offensive? Do you think to white southerners? Because of the poor white narrative in the book. And that part would have been insulting to the Southerners. Yeah. Some scholars think, at least in symbolic terms, maybe they've overinterpreted that um, Huck was black. I mean, maybe not literally, but certainly in his attitudes and behavior and even his language. Do you think there may be any truth to that in terms of, as I said, maybe overinterpretation? But he certainly, he certainly was an American of uh, 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 the new world rather than the old world. He was. Uh, you're hurting my brain now, Andrew. Um, when you look at the, obviously when you look at the uh, sketches that were done for the book by E.W. Kimball, Huck is white. And I think I think you're, you're uh, that making Huck black is a is a is a device to talk about his attitudes and his attitudes in for a lot of the time were Jim was an equal. Now they did play their roles when necessary. Huck and Jim played their roles and that's some of the more uncomfortable uh, sections of the book to us today. What about the role of education? You, we already noted that the, the library in Massachusetts wasn't alone and conquered Massachusetts, banned the book. Um, it's a book in part about education or the lack of education. Does it suggest that we don't need to be schooled? America's always had a very... I odd ambivalent relationship with education on the one hand it's the thing that makes us and perhaps on the other hand it's the thing that unmakes us i i we did not discuss that issue and i wish we had i wish you had called in and brought that up because that's a that's a terrific point and to put words in mark twain's mouth or thoughts in mark twain's head i would say that he knew that people could succeed without a formal education and by the seat of their pants by the wits by their wits and that's how huck and jim were able to basically make it through you know the 40 some chapters in this book and and uh and be relatively successful and to get out of scrapes so yeah i i don't think he i think Twain would agree that, hey, education, great. Classics, great. Not everybody needs to have an education to succeed. And there's certainly a, a, a healthily unapologetic quality uh, in, in the best American spirit about the book. Uh, we've done, we've been doing a lot of shows, Peter, on the death of the American dream, the idea that anyone can be mm -hmm. born in this country and make themselves the old Horatio Alva, some people see it as a fiction, always, some people see it as at least at one point in American history being true. It, 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 does, does 
Huckleberry Finn and 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 Twain, do they have that quality that that anyone can make themselves if they shape themselves, if they're brave, if they're honest, if they're direct? Hmm. Is that one of the reasons why the book resonated so much and why Twain, as as you suggested, is the American Shakespeare? The first word in the title of the book to me says it all, adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Adventures of the United States of America. Um, There was a world to explore and there were new attitudes and and you didn't have to be limited by what perhaps you were taught at yale taught at harvard taught at princeton and be of that mindset you could think for yourself and i think that was part of it and that is a very typical american attitude it's so funny that you bring up the american dream this is something that we've been seeing a couple of new books on Greg Lukianoff has. A yeah, he was on the show last week, Lukianoff, and also uh, um, yeah. David Leonhardt. Are you familiar with? Yes, yeah, two people that are going to be on book TV in the very near future. I'm glad you got. We we got everyone um, before C-SPAN, Peter. <laughs> well, I'm going to start looking at your guest list and just copy it. Um, you know, we talk about eras in america and we talk about oh everything was stable then nothing has ever been stable the only constant is change andrew and a friend of mine described the era we're living in now as the great realignment which i really liked it it resonated with me um just just the technology we're using today is a classic upper education necessary I don't know. Um, Are these institutions necessary? Is an office necessary? Um, These are all these things that are the great realignment that we're in now. But there has never been a period in American history that has been static. There have been maybe three or four year periods, but that's it. And 1884, when Huckleberry Finn came out, we were not a static country. We were changing. We were growing. We were exploring. We were looking at new attitudes, like you said at the beginning of this diatribe that I just went on. Um, so I think that's a really interesting, interesting way of seeing America. Never has it been static. Yeah, and maybe another way of thinking of it is just as um, Twain's book is the adventures of Huckleberry Finn, American history is an adventure for better or worse not always a great adventure doesn't always end well but there is something yeah. remarkably adventurous about this nation um it's always trying to go somewhere maybe there isn't a place to go anymore which is where all the contradictions are where are we going next peter on our adventure in american literature we are going to the harlem uh, no i'm sorry we're not going to the harlem renaissance no today. we're not going we, there yet we will we're go to, to harlem but going, we've got a, a we're slight looking detour. at the immigrant we're looking at the immigrant experience women's issues another novel my antonia will look gather yeah we'll go and we'll Pulitzer be there next week. so i'm looking forward to that and one that's what we're going to talk about next week have a good week don't steal all my guests and we'll talk next week <laughs> andrew good to see you